People fear miracles because they fear being changed. Those are the words of Reuben, the narrator of the, of the novel, Peace Like a River. People fear miracles because they fear being changed. He just told the story of his birth and the way that his father tells the story, he somehow survived miraculously. He should not have made it through what was a difficult and terrible birth process. And then he makes that profound statement. People fear miracles because they fear being changed. Jesus and his disciples are out on the lake. They're in a boat. Jesus has been teaching all day long. He's been teaching using parables, explaining them to the crowds, and then explaining them in deeper detail with his disciples. He's exhausted. He's worn out from the day. He lays down in the stern of the boat and falls fast asleep out of nowhere. And this is a normal thing on the Sea of Galilee. If you've been there, you've heard this before. Storms can just come up suddenly off of the desert, a wind rushing, waves crashing. It can be terrible and, and frightening and scary and all the rest. The disciples are saying, essentially, don't you care? We're about to die. The boat's being swamped. Come on, Lord, wake up. Do something. He wakes up, and in, in the Greek version of, of Mark's gospel, he says two words, both of them in the imperative, with exclamation points, as it were. Peace, still. It's kind of like a parent when speaking to a child. You know, maybe some of your parents have done that before when the kids are getting kind of crazy when they're little, or I've heard some even adult kids can get wild and crazy, and a mom and dad will say, peace, be quiet, just relax. Take a breath. What's fascinating in this story is whether or not Jesus is speaking just to the storm, that maybe he's also stuck talking to the disciples. Peace. Be still. The storm really is a, is a sort of a, an acted out parable. Jesus had been teaching all these parables along the way, and then Mark inserts this story here in his gospel's way of saying, do you want to see what these parables look like in real life? Here you go. You see, because earlier in the story he had been telling, or earlier in the day he had been telling the story of the, of the mustard seed. Do you remember that parable, the story of the mustard seed? This mustard seed is the tiniest, just a teeny tiny, the smallest of seeds. And yet when you plant it, take care of it, it grows into the largest shrub, one of the largest shrubs there is. It almost looks like a small tree. Jesus is basically saying to his disciples, if you've got that much faith, just that much, just a pinch, if you have 99% of your mind full of doubts, but you've got 1% of faith, that will be enough to help you move forward. And then here they are on the boat. It's as though they, they've forgotten the very teaching they've just learned. They're stuck, as one scholar says, between holy awe and mighty terror. It's a difficult thing. Jesus is clearly, though, asking them to change. You see, the teaching had gone on in the little village of Capernaum. Capernaum's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's this sweet little village. In fact, you can visit there today. I've been there. You can visit Capernaum and experience what it's like, very much what it was like 2,000 years ago. The ruins are, are very carefully kept. There are thousands of tourists who come every day. If it wasn't for the tourists, I could almost retire there. It's really a pleasant, sweet little place. But Jesus has them on the boat. They've left Capernaum. They're now going to the land of Gerasenes. The Gerasenes won't get into it too much, but they're a strange, wild, and woolly people as far as the disciples are concerned. They don't understand them. They think differently. They act differently. They look differently. It's going to be a frightening experience. Maybe to sort of understand it, it imagine going to a village full of uh, Wolverine fans, perhaps. Okay? <laughs> Just get it. Can I say that out loud, David? Is that okay to say? David says yes. Good. 
<clears throat> you see what it is? Jesus is expecting them to change. Everything's been great. Their little kingdom message has started out. Jesus is preaching love and grace and hope. They feel good. It feels wonderful. And now, now it's time to take this word out into the world because the world then, even as today, was desperate for a word of hope, for a bit of love. And the storm is basically saying to them, in the middle of it, Jesus is here now. God's word is, was wanting, is ready to take over now. This word of love is ready to be spread everywhere. Are you ready even though things are stormy, even though, even though things are a mess? Are you ready in the mess of whatever it is, whether you're in control or not, to receive this word and to move forward in faith? Are you ready for change? Simon Sinek, I hope you've read his work. He's, he's a brilliant writer, and very, a very good uh, organizational thinker. He says, one of the problems with dealing with change is we tend to skip ahead to what and how. Why? Well, because what and how are easy. It's, it's fairly easy to say what we want to do and then how are we going to do it. But Sinek says what you really need to do is start with why. That's the name of his book. Begin with why. Start with why. As soon as we can figure out why we're doing what we're doing, then what and how are not nearly as difficult. He uses Martin Luther King as, a, as, a, as a, a, an illustration. Do you remember King standing up on the Washington Mall in 1963? 250,000 people spread out before him, and he began his sermon, and what did he say? I have a plan. No, I have a dream. And it was the dream that gave root to the plan and to the fight for civil rights, a fight that we are sadly still fighting 53 years later even today. It's the dream that gives power to the plan. It's the willingness to seek out the change and to ask the hard questions of why are we moving in this direction in order that it might take root and take hold. I've seen this uh, take place and I can tell you it's not always easy. It feels like when change is spreading around, it feels like there is a storm going on in our hearts and our souls and our, and our minds even. Several years ago, I began as a pastor at a church in, in Atlanta. When I, when I began there, I heard three words quite often. We used to. We used to. Oh, we used to have full pews every Sunday. Oh, we used to have Sunday school rooms overflowing with kids all the way from kindergarten through high school. We, we used to have offering plates that we'd be brought down in the front, bills and checks and offering envelopes spilling out of them. They were so full. We used to. And they even said this to me in the interview, but now we're in survival mode. Now we're just trying to make it one week at a time. So what we did was we gathered the pastors and the leaders of that church and we began to ask ourselves, why? Why do we exist? Why are we here? Why do we get up on a Sunday morning and come to church and do all this stuff, hear beautiful music, hear a sermon, gather together in the social hall later for a cup of coffee? Why do we do that? And we had to struggle a little bit. In fact, we skipped ahead to what and to how just a little too fast. We, we took a survey of the congregation. You know what happens when you take a survey of the congregation? They tell you what they think. We did it on music. We asked the congregation, what's your preference for music? We named five different kinds of music, classical, traditional, gospel, jazz, and contemporary. Do you know what they replied? 21% like classical, 22% like traditional, 19% like gospel, another 18% like contemporary, and, a few, and 18 or 19% like jazz. It was a five-way tie for first. It didn't tell us anything, really. <clears throat> and then we hired a music minister. 
Great guy, young guy, very talented. But I told him on his first day, here's the survey results. And what this means is every Sunday, 80% of the people will be mad at you. <laughs> See, we skipped ahead to the what and the how without asking why. We've got to know why first, then the what and the how they take care of themselves. They don't seem to be nearly as complex as we might have imagined. I remember a few years later in that church, Julie and I went to dinner with, with a couple, a, a couple much older than us. They were in our 70s. We were still in our 30s then. Their names are Frank and Betty Jean. They're from Alabama. I could tell how Alabama did the day before in football on a Sunday morning without looking at the newspaper because I could tell just by the way Frank walked into church. Well, we're at dinner. And Betty Jean has this wonderful lilt to her voice. And she just says, Goliath. In Alabama, my name has three syllables. <laughs> Goliath, things are so nice at the church. It's so much calmer now. We feel so much better. There's people in the pews and the plates are full. And, you know, just, it's so, everything's it's just back to the way it's supposed to be. And I was just smiling the whole time. And she said, I don't like that smile. What's behind that smile? I said, Betty Jean. Betty Jean, you know, we're going to have to deal with some stuff. Oh, don't tell me that. I don't want to have to go through any change. I said, Betty Jean, do you remember where we used to be? We were there because we became complacent. We sat back. We enjoyed the status quo. We didn't want to do anything to deal with the changes that were right in front of us. And as a result of that, we began to fall apart. We have to deal every moment with what it is God is calling us toward next. Mark wants us to see this morning the image of a God who comes to us in the middle of the storm. It's in the storm where God sometimes is most clearly heard. God's voice is most clearly heard. Think about the Bible. Think about the best parts of the Bible, the most inspiring parts. They were written at the worst of times. Isaiah and Jeremiah, beautiful poets, beautiful preachers, amazing prophets. They wrote in a time of turmoil when everything around them was destroyed. Think of the Gospels of Mark. Matthew, Luke, John, the terror of the cross, the beauty of the resurrection. It's in the worst of times when God's voice sometimes is most clear. And yet, we're not sure we want a God like that, are we? We're not sure we want a God who, who comes in the middle of the storm. We, in fact, it's Kathleen Norris who wrote a, a wonderful book years ago titled Amazing Grace, who, who said she's always caught up and, and surprised when she hears people say, oh, I can't handle that kind of a God. Can't handle it. A God who is father or mother. A God who is lover or angry or jealous. A God who is, for God's sake, on a cross. I can't handle it, they'll say. And she says what they really mean is they want a God they can manipulate, suspiciously make it this God look like themselves. We want a God who's a benign cheerleader. We want a God who is, who is our mascot that we pat on the back as we run in to play the game. We want, we want a God who's on the sidelines, not in the middle of the storm, calling us forward to a new life. Are you ready for a God that you cannot cut down to size? Are you ready to face the changes that God is calling you to look at in your very life right even today? Are you ready? Now I know. I know, this is frightening stuff. Part, part of the fear that comes from following in God's ways is, is the simple fact that it requires us to embrace the mystery of God. We don't have all the answers. We don't know everything there is to know about God. C.S. Lewis says when we embrace that mystery, it's kind of like uh, renovating your house. Ra raise your hand if you've ever renovated your house. Have some of you done that before? Some of you redone some? Of course you have. I remember when we did it in Atlanta. 
Our entire house was torn up. There was a, a quarter inch thick of dust everywhere on everything. There was somebody knocking on our door, some workman at our door every morning at 7 a.m. until 7 o'clock at night. It was a mess until six months later when we had this brand new, marvelous, wonderful house. Sometimes that's what's going on in our own lives. God is turning things up, turning them upside down, covering everything with dust because there's something new being made out of you, out of the amazing person that God has already made you to be. Like I said, though, this can be hard. It can be difficult. I've told some of you about the time that Julie and I, my wife and I, went through therapy. We had a little three-year-old boy, but our, our marriage was a disaster. There was a tornadic storm almost literally at the center of it. It was falling apart. We, we, we basically walked right up to a cliff named divorce. And in fact, had decided we're, we're going to end the marriage. We talked to two friends, and one friend said, you know, I, I have a friend who's a therapist. He specializes in pastors. Why don't you give him a call? And so we, we, we called. It was, we, we set up an appointment. We went many times over a year together. It was horrible, awful, terrible, rude, unbelievably hard, and worse. And 12 months later, it was the best thing we'd ever done. It was, it was unbelievable the way we were turned upside down and finally found ourselves on the other side. But here's the thing, though. Even in doing that, it changed how we saw ourselves and it changed the way we behaved. What I discovered in this, in this experience was that I wanted, I wanted everyone to think of me as perfect, that I was the right kind of minister, that I had everything all figured out. I had this glittering image that I was constantly working on to keep out in front of everybody else. And instead, what this therapist helped us see was that when you eliminate all that nonsense and you just be the person that God has called you to be, suddenly your life can turn around. A couple of months after the therapy was done, I remember preaching a sermon. I was an associate minister back in those days, so I preached about every six or seven weeks, maybe eight times a year. I got up, preached a sermon. It was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't bad. At the back of the door, I was shaking hands with this man who was my, in my young adult group, 35 years old, named Michael. He came through and he said, I've always thought you were a good speaker. Today's the first day I believed that you believed what you were preaching. Could have knocked me over with a feather. He had no idea about the therapy. We had kept that quiet. I told no one. You see, in that, in that effort to keep everything covered up, I was starting to lose my faith, to lose my way. I wanted to be that perfect minister. By the way, I told that story in that church a few months later, and, and somebody else came up to me after church and said, just so you know, we've known since you got here that you aren't perfect. <laughs> you see, fear can cripple. Fear can hold us back from taking on the challenges that are in front of us. It can slow us down, cause us to miss the very hand of God in our, in our presence. Back in that same time, before the therapy, I was a youth minister working hard in the church. But part of my, my assignment was to lead a, a worship service at a senior care facility once a month. Once a month on a Sunday afternoon, like at three o'clock, I would bring three or four or five kids from the youth group. They'd bring their guitars. We'd bring hymn books. I'd give a little sermon. We'd sing some songs, and then we'd go home. And I, I, I don't mind admitting, honestly, I hated it. It smelled terrible. There were people there with severe dementia. They would cry out in the middle of the service. There were some who had all kinds of physical problems and disabilities, and I was a rude, arrogant fool. I would rush through the service, rush through the songs, and run out the back door as quick as I could. One, one Sunday, a woman stopped me, a resident. She stood in front of me as I tried to walk out the door. 
She said, thank you for coming today. And I shook her hand and said, thank you. And I tried to walk around her and she moved. She's about 85, but she moved pretty good. And she said, you know something? We know it's terrible here. Do you know what? We know it smells bad here. Do you know what? It's like she's reading my mind. Do you know what? We know that it's not a very pleasant place for you to come. But here, you need to understand this, boy. You need to understand this as clear as I can say it. When you brought your Bible, God didn't show up. When you brought your hymn books, God didn't show up. God's been here all along, and don't you forget that. And if you would stay long enough and take a breath long enough, you might actually see that God is already here. That might be even to this day the best sermon I've ever heard. It's in, the, it's in the storm where God is found. The disciples are afraid. They yell in anger and frustration. Jesus, don't you care? And Jesus sits up and he says, calm down. Take a breath. Don't you believe yet? Their fear is controlling everything they do and everything they say. Sometimes it feels like that in our world, doesn't it? How many more terrible news stories do we need to ruin our weekend before the church is going to find the courage and the strength to stand up and say, this far and no further. Today, this weaponizing of our culture must end. It's time. It's time that we stand together and make this word in the name of Jesus Christ as clear as we possibly can. You see, because the church of Jesus is ready and willing in Jesus' own words, to go to hell if necessary with the word of grace and hope, to stand up in the face of violence and proclaim a word that begins with love because this is where we're needed the most. Now, I know this is not easy. There's a story told by Anthony Robinson of a church that was about to close. They used to be big and strong, hundreds of members. They're down to 75. Hardly anybody shows up on Sunday morning. They call a congregational meeting on a Sunday afternoon. About 50 people show up and they get into angry confrontations and finger pointing and blame back and forth. The meeting goes on for three hours. The, the pastor is frustrated. He doesn't know what to do. And so he looks over to the side and he sees a little boy, just a little boy, like nine years old named Joshua, seated over on the, in, in the transept. He says, Joshua, would you please bring us a word? He's just trying to break up the tension. Maybe Joshua will say something cute. He doesn't know. The pastor's just grabbing anything. Joshua takes it serious. He, he walks over. He comes up to the microphone. You're going to need the Bible, he said. You're going to need to be bold. You're going to need to be brave. And you're going to need each other. And he sat down. Going to need to be bold, brave. These ancient stories will guide us. Sometimes it takes a child to lead us. Today's Block of Wood Sunday. It's an honor and a thrill for me to stand here with, with the 36 young people who are confirming their baptism in, in a few moments. I, I want all of you to know this. Today, we celebrate with you in the decision you're making and the confirmation of your faith and your baptism, and that means also that we're expecting something from you. We want you to bring your whole self, your heart, your soul, and your mind. You know, this is the church of the infinite quest. We've been called that now for about 100 years. That means, do you hear that word, quest? That means you're to bring your questions. That means if you've got doubts, bring those doubts. If you've got worries and fears and anxieties and all that, bring all of it. Bring all of it into the midst of whatever the storm is going on in your own life, trusting and believing that God will be present and that God will be a part of that.
if you have 99% doubts, but 1% of faith, the promise is that's more than enough. And in fact, if you're having a hard time believing at all, well, the teachings of Jesus Christ are clear. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, love those who persecute you. Do that, and I promise God will find you. That's the promise of Scripture. When we give our heart and soul and mind to the way of Christ, life itself reaches out to us. To live like that is miraculous. I know, I know and you know, people fear miracles because people fear being changed. What change is taking place? What miracle is challenging us today? To what are we called as a congregation here at First Community Church in the, immediate, in, in the days and weeks and, and years even to come? Are we ready for the storms that will face us? Are we ready to face the world, to go to hell and back if necessary, to bring this word of hope, to bring a cup of cold water to the thirsty, clothing to the naked, love to the loveless? Are we ready? Are we ready? And you know this. We're going to need the Bible. We're going to need to be bold. We're going to need to be brave. And we're going to need each other. Amen.